Welcome to Modern Dogma, a Christian considering today's ideas. In the first episode of our economics series, we discussed Bitcoin and how, at the time, its consensus use case was as a store of value or hedge against inflation. My central criticism of this narrative was the fact that Bitcoin cannot be a store of value because a store of value must first have value in and of itself. And Bitcoin decidedly does not, at least not until some other non-circular use case is identified by the majority that makes it inherently valuable. And that consensus alternative use case still has not appeared. Bitcoin continues to be nothing more than a speculative asset that traders use as a vehicle to just buy and sell on short timeframes, hoping to scalp a quick buck. In fact, these days, traders just use Bitcoin as like a 24-hour VIX indicator, a volatility indicator. They just use it as a speedometer, in other words, of the market's risk appetite. When Bitcoin is going up, traders hope that means the stock market will be bullish. If Bitcoin is going down, maybe everyone is selling. Since our first economics episode on Bitcoin, Bitcoin has only become further mutated from any kind of use case that would make Bitcoin in itself something that you would want to hodl, something that you think you can hold for 100 years and pass on to your great grandkids and it'll freeze your purchasing power in place. Now, I concede there are fringe use cases for Bitcoin, like as a vehicle to sneak your money out of some kind of repressive dictatorial regime. I have to admit, I've warmed to the idea that that could be where the Bitcoin narrative goes eventually, especially if geopolitical events start heating up. But the point is, it's a fringe use case at the time of this recording. It's not the majority opinion right now regarding Bitcoin. Right now, Bitcoin is still in this viciously circular thesis that it's a store of value because it's a store of value because it's a store of value. Stated another way, Bitcoin's price is high because Bitcoin's price is high because Bitcoin's price is high. As recently as May 12th, 2022, this year, two of the leading head pastors of Bitcoin Gnosticism, Michael Saylor and Anthony Pompliano, continue to double down on the Bitcoin as store of value or Bitcoin as the ultimate inflation hedge narrative. Saylor stated, quote, Bitcoin is the best hedge against inflation since MicroStrategy announced its first Bitcoin purchase on August 11th, 2020, Bitcoin has appreciated 149%, outperforming silver, gold, NASDAQ, the S&P, CPI, M2 Money Supply, Homes, and PPI. Very interesting. Saylor decided to pick this very particular range of time to make his case. Not suspicious at all. Why didn't he start from November 2021 when Bitcoin's price has been cut nearly to a third of its all-time high? In any case, Pompliano responded to Saylor in the same Twitter thread, quote, digital sound money continues to do what it was designed to do, end quote. I point out Pompliano and Saylor's comments simply to demonstrate that the majority narrative, the consensus bull argument for Bitcoin, continues to be that it's a store of value, it's an inflation hedge. That is the prevailing narrative. And as such, as long as Bitcoin believes it's a store of value, it will go to its intrinsic true value eventually, which is zero. Now, just for fun, for a little while now, after the first economics episode I did on Bitcoin, I've held this thought experiment that 
I think Bitcoin's price can actually go way, way higher from here. And this is largely just a take born out of cynicism about how manic and crazy people can be. I'm not acting on this conviction at all. No skin in the game. But the sentiment is so washed out right now. I'm the guy that thinks Bitcoin is eventually going to its true value of zero. But nothing goes down or up in a straight line. And you can see all these 4D chess geniuses right now trying to short Bitcoin now after it's already lost two-thirds of its all-time high. And things just don't go to zero that way. You can't keep going down when everyone, quote-unquote, knows something is a, quote-unquote, obvious short. When that happens, you've literally run out of sellers. I mean, think about it. Who else is going to buy the Bitcoin you're trying to sell right now when sentiment is this bad? Everyone is sick to their stomach about Bitcoin and crypto. People are literally killing themselves. It's super tragic because they were super levered up on crypto at the highs. And by the way, just another piece of evidence in my mind that the crypto community bears bad spiritual fruit. Clearly for most, it was just pure gambling. It's not an investment. There's no business backing it. There's no intrinsic value. There's no FDIC of crypto to insure you. There's no God-ordained governmental authority protecting you as is part of their job. But in any case, Sentiment-wise, right now, you literally have suicides from people putting their whole life savings into crypto, and you have Ponzi schemes left and right, like Luna blowing up. I haven't seen anyone saying, have fun staying poor in, I think, like literally a year on Twitter. People are just sick of this trading vehicle, and it sure looks like a little local bottom to me. I would not be surprised at all to find out in six months, Bitcoin's price is way, way higher than today, but personally... It'll get there without me. No thank you. Once again, buyer beware. None of this is or ever will be financial advice. This is just for fun. Now, but what is interesting about Bitcoin and what we want to talk about today, and we touched on this last time a little bit, so some of this will be a repeat, but I thought it was worth a standalone episode or two, it turns out. But what is interesting about Bitcoin is that in pushing this Bitcoin as store of value argument, Bitcoin has often been labeled digital gold or gold 2.0. Now, to be fair, many Bitcoin advocates using this terminology don't see the two assets opposed to each other. There are plenty of Bitcoin hodlers that own and appreciate both, but there are certainly many others that see the two, Bitcoin and gold, as opposed. And the longer I think about it, I actually agree with the latter, the Bitcoin Gnostics, the Maxis, ironically. In this narrow area, I actually agree with the Bitcoin Maxi Gnostic cultists that Bitcoin and gold, at least in the question of which asset is a legitimate store of value, I actually agree with the Bitcoin Maxi that gold and Bitcoin are diametrically opposed in many important ways. On the one side, you have Bitcoin, which is allegedly this sophisticated, modern, sleek, electronic abstraction of value. It's cool. Well, not anymore with sentiment in the gutter, but it used to be cool. It's young and cutting edge. It's esoteric hash algorithms, blockchains, decentralization. Advocates wear beanies and hang out at single origin coffee shops. And then the other, gold, is literally as old as dirt. And there's really nothing cool or refined about it. Just a giant, heavy chunk of yellow metal. As simple as it gets, the rotary phone of asset classes. You don't need a graduate degree or a cryptography background to understand it. It's a shiny rock. 
When you think of someone that owns gold, they typically build doomsday bunkers and hoard guns and ammo. The thought of owning it in our paper currency digital internet age is almost laughable to most Americans. I, sp I specify Americans, by the way, that have this unique attitude. We'll get back to that in a moment. But the most important aspect of Bitcoin as a store of value versus gold is the theological underpinning. You see, the former is made by man, but the latter by God. And that, as in all things, makes all the difference. You see, in a world that overwhelmingly denies the existence of the God of the Bible, whether explicitly or implicitly by living a life totally apathetic to spiritual things, nobody actually understands gold. And that is because to understand gold, you must start with the creator God. Otherwise, it makes no sense. It's just a shiny, unproductive pet rock. Why are people so obsessed with it? Why is it so important? How is it any different than the Beanie Baby craze from the 90s? But the foundation of the bullish gold thesis and the foundation of understanding really any aspect of creation is to recognize that gold is valuable because God said so. That is bedrock. That is foundation. And there is nowhere else you can begin to explain gold's place in humanity's monetary history. We begin at the very beginning of God's word, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where the Lord is recounting how he created the heavens and the earth. What's amazing is God being God could have created the world in an instant, yet for some reason God decided to create the world piecemeal over six days in a very distinctly orderly fashion. And we see something about God's orderliness and symmetry and aesthetic beauty in his manner of forming everything in the universe in such a logical fashion. There is light first, then an expanse, then sky, oceans, land, and then the creatures that occupy the sky, oceans, and land, and on and on, until we see God's crowning achievement in creating man in his own image. By the way, as a side note, we did an entire series in our uh, Who Are We series where we discuss man's identity and the importance of our imageness, as I call it. But there is a refrain that repeats throughout the Genesis 1 creation account at the close of each of the six days of creation. And it is a sentence, quote, God saw that it, that is to say what he created, was good, end quote. Day and night were good. The sea creatures were good. Human beings very good. That word good contains a concept relevant to our discussion today, and that is the concept of inherent value. Creation has real, inherent, intrinsic value by its very nature, just by itself. No utility attached to it. Trees and air and animals and people aren't good and valuable just because they're useful to us. They're precious all by themselves, just by what they are. And that is because God made it and declared they were. God imbued a bit of his own ultimate worthiness and value into these derivative things he made that reflect and reveal who he is as its creator. Your grandmother in a coma loses none of her value as a human being just because she is adding very little utility to society. No, she cannot speak or work or move, but you just know that she is still valuable. She must be treated with dignity. Why? Because her worth and value is intrinsic to her. God said so. That's it. 
There is no underlying reason. It all boils down to God's decree in creation. In fact, so much of who God is is so readily reflected in every aspect of creation that the Holy Spirit, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, can be so bold to say that anyone that says God doesn't exist is just lying to themselves and suppressing what they know to be obviously true. It's so obvious from nature, from all the natural universe, that there was a God behind it all. You are suppressing the truth of God's existence and his holy wrath against sin if you pretend he doesn't exist. Nature is inherently theological. And that is why nature, as God's handiwork, has degrees of real, precious value. Now, the world can't make sense of the concept of objective inherent value or beauty or truth and morality. All of these things cannot be argued for by itself. You need to start with God. This is why postmodernism and moral relativism, and in our case, the concept of inherent value, is always self-contradicting without a divine creator in the picture. In our last economics episode on Bitcoin, we talked about Bitcoin maximalism, really Bitcoin idolatry and a form of a very old heresy called Gnosticism, and how Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy, was a prominent example of the Bitcoin maxi, as it's called. Well, idolatry doesn't discriminate between asset classes, and the Michael Saylor on the gold maximalism side, if we want to call it that, is probably none other than Peter Schiff. Peter Schiff is a very famous money manager who runs a gold and precious metals focus fund. And he was actually Ron Paul's economic advisor during Paul's 2008 presidential election bid. But Peter Schiff is the gold analog to the Bitcoin cultists. People call these folks gold bugs. Now, as a quote-unquote fan of gold myself, I see Peter Schiff and other gold bugs run into this problem all the time when they're debating Bitcoin maximalists and espousing the superiority of gold as a store of value. Now, I agree with that assessment, by the way. Gold is a sufficiently good, but not perfect, store of value. But these unbelieving gold bugs will often say, it's dumb to own Bitcoin as a store of value because it has no intrinsic value. Great argument. I 100% agree. If you're going to own Bitcoin, it better be because you're trading it short term and just admit that you're basically gambling. Because in my opinion, to hold Bitcoin long term, believing it's a store of value, I would agree with a gold bug. It's a very, very dangerous game because there is no real value in it. But what these God denying gold bugs fail to recognize is by employing an argument that appeals to intrinsic value, they trap themselves. Because inevitably in these debates, the Bitcoin advocate responds, okay, sure, Bitcoin has no worth in and of itself. I grant that. But neither does gold. Nothing has intrinsic value. Postmodernism, truth is relative. We decide what is or is not valuable, beautiful, or true. Truth and value are subjective. They're just opinion. Might makes right. Consensus determines truth. Truth is completely utilitarian. If it works, it's true. If the price goes up, it's treasure. Who can say otherwise? then gold bugs typically run into a series of very weak rebuttals. Uh, well, uh, unlike Bitcoin, gold is pretty. It's shiny. Peter Schiff actually uses these arguments, by the way. You can always make gold into a necklace. You can't do that with Bitcoin. Gold has this tiny, tiny industrial use. Right. 
So that's why it's around $1,700 an ounce as of this recording, and that's why it has served as a monetary base for practically every major ancient and modern civilization for thousands of years, because you can turn it into a necklace, please. Interestingly, even many Christians don't understand gold, at least American ones. And I believe it's because as Americans, we view investment classes from the advantage of being the global reserve fiat currency. Why own a shiny, unproductive pet rock that just sits there and doesn't breed and multiply when the literal structure of the global economy forces money to always flow into your United States stocks and bonds? As an American, you just buy and hold the S&P 500. And honestly, you did just fine for 100 years. Now, if you're Indian or you're Syrian, another story. But Americans in general find gold kind of ridiculous, even Christian ones. Joe Carter writes in a December 27th, 2017 article entitled, quote, The FAQs, What You Should Know About Bitcoin, end quote, for the Gospel Coalition. Carter states, additionally, gold has the advantage of being a long-term illusion, Gold is valuable because for thousands of years, we humans have convinced ourselves that gold is valuable. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have a long way to go before they can create a similar money delusion, end quote. Carter unknowingly parrots the mainstream narrative surrounding the question of stores of value and money, which is that things become valuable simply due to network effects. If some asset class, some commodity, just happens to get enough traction by pure chance, if you manage to trick enough people to adopt gold and you give it enough time, you generate a feedback loop where the network gets bigger and bigger, and suddenly we all buy into this mass delusion that the commodity is valuable. It could have easily happened with seashells instead. It could have been lobsters. It could have been pictures of Albert Einstein. It just happened to happen with gold. And hey, Maybe it could happen to Bitcoin. Again, we discussed this a little bit in our last economics episode, episode 15. Now, to be sure, these feedback loops do occur. Network effects are very real and very powerful. This is why you have occasional manias like Beanie Babies, the Dutch tulip mania, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies the last couple years, worthless NFTs with no use case, just ugly pictures of monkeys or the latest idiotic craze. Network effects and manias are real and there are savvy people that make a living trading these things. Legendary trader and infamous political leftist George Soros has a philosophy that when he sees a bubble, he tries to get into it as fast as possible and then cash out and leave the party before everyone else. What's absurd, however, is equating these short-lived flashes in the pan like Beanie Babies with the obviously unusual staying power of gold. The idea that gold is valuable and is considered real treasure, real wealth, is an idea that has persisted as far back as humans can document. In fact, once again, going back to the creation account in Genesis, we know from God-breathed history, gold's place as a valuable commodity was fixed since creation, gold's persistence cannot be explained simply by network effects alone. Over time, men were not able to deny gold's place as treasure because to do so is to deny gold's creator. Now, what I would like to do, I think you guys will find very interesting. Like I stated before in a previous episode, the philosophy behind modern dogma is I'm trying to find those more obscure, interesting little side topics that you won't often see discussed in the context of your local church. 
Modern dogma and Christian podcasts in general is not a substitute for you receiving your main spiritual sustenance from a healthy, Bible-believing local church that teaches the full counsel of Scripture. But as I was thinking through and studying the Bible on this topic, it turns out that there are actually a lot of very interesting passages that speak to the relevance and significance of gold, and that in turn leads to some very interesting implications for the world today. First, we already touched on the bedrock of the gold thesis. Gold is simply recognized by men as real treasure with real inherent value. Again, that was Genesis 2, verse 12. We do not give gold value. It's not a mass psychosis. Gold's value is derived from God. God said this yellow metal is genuine treasure, and all we do as men is recognize God's decree. God is a creator. He creates his universe to abide by certain laws and rules and decrees, you know, Newton's three laws. That's not made by Newton. It was just recognized by men. God invented those laws and those rules. And all we do at best is acknowledge them. What we call science, which often changes, is nothing more than us men discovering how God created his universe. We're not creating anything. We're just acknowledging the equations and laws God established. And in the economic and finance realm, it's no different. Concepts like diversification, intrinsic and inherent value, these are God-ordained ideas that originate with God. And so because God has decreed that physical gold is genuine treasure, we humans can't help but acknowledge this fact, which is why we've assigned the moniker precious metal to describe gold. And because gold was made precious by God, physical gold, physical treasure, as it turns out, is a favorite analogy for spiritual treasure throughout Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Holy Spirit exhorts Christians to be careful how you build on the foundation of Christ. In other words, the kind of ministry you perform to God, how you serve God in this life, has various quality ratings. There's a kind of ministry we perform where on the surface it looks so pious and godly and holy, but it turns out on the inside you were doing it with a totally sinful attitude. Maybe you were becoming proud of how many supposed converts you're making. Maybe you're just going through the motions of some church ministry you're part of with a totally apathetic or maybe even complaining attitude. In any case, these worthless acts of supposed service to God are described as flammable temporary materials, wood, hay, and straw in the latter half of verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, on the flip side, there are real works of service done with a pure heart motive that actually has some eternal impact and value. And interestingly, and relevant to our present topic, these permanent acts of genuine heartfelt service to King Jesus are described as firstly gold, then silver and precious stones. Now, think with me. The Holy Spirit, God, knows the entirety of humanity's past, present, and future. Nothing takes God by surprise. There is no invention by man in the modern age that the Holy Spirit somehow didn't realize humanity would invent thousands of years ago when the Bible was being written. The Bitcoin narrative, this man-made digital protocol that is supposedly going to supplant gold as gold 2.0, digital gold, this isn't some surprising development to God. What is amazing and what speaks to God's wisdom is how 
decade after decade, century after century, in God's wisdom, the Bible, by and large, uses such timeless analogies and metaphors to explain its core teachings. It's amazing to think how these great parables and figures of speech turn the other cheek, the Good Samaritan, the Persistent Widow, Christ the Cornerstone of a Building, and in the topic at hand, adorning the foundation that is Christ with gold and silver. It's amazing how the Bible's communication transcends time. It's always so clear and understandable generation after generation. And that is where we get a very interesting economic implication. You see, based on how prominently gold features throughout Scripture as a metaphor for spiritual treasure, I, for one, am left with great confidence that physical, earthly gold will always be an important, genuine store of value. Now, don't get me wrong, this isn't a super important hill to die on for me. I just thought I'd make an interesting off-the-beaten-path podcast topic. This isn't like some major doctrinal conviction for me. It's fun, mostly. I'm not going to say I am a thousand percent sure of this conclusion. It's not like the doctrine of the Trinity in terms of how confident I am. It's an implication I'm drawing from Scripture. It's not doctrine itself. In other words, there's no chapter and verse that says, even in the year 5000 AD, physical gold will be a genuine store of value asset class. However, hopefully you're tracking how I got to this conclusion. Gold is used so frequently throughout Scripture as a metaphor for spiritual treasure. When God wants to describe spiritual realities, the really important things in eternity, in other words, what does he reach for? He points to earthly gold to say, you see that? You see how you hoard that stuff because it's part of your earthly wealth? Have that kind of attitude in hoarding heavenly wealth, which is your service to the Lord Jesus. And based on how frequently the gold analogy is used, it doesn't make sense for gold to one day be supplanted in its historically very special place as valuable treasure by something like a cryptocurrency or something else. But we only looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's look at another verse. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is in the middle of speaking to seven churches that once existed in a Roman territory called Asia Minor. It's occupied by modern-day Turkey. Some of the churches are given commendations for faithfulness and steadfastness. Some churches are given very harsh rebukes. And that's what we see happening in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, where Jesus is issuing some very stinging corrections to an unhealthy church called Laodicea. Now, what is interesting is in verse 18, when Jesus is rebuking the Laodicean Christians to repent and be healed, he issues the following exhortation, quote, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Again, when speaking of spiritual treasure, true treasure, the most important type of treasure, which is a right relationship with God, what physical analogy does Jesus use? gold. Further, physical gold was considered by God such a fitting earthly analogy for heavenly treasure that it featured prominently in the formal worship of Yahweh under the Old Covenant. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 4, we see King David dedicated a huge sum of gold, 3,000 talents, or about 200,000 pounds of gold, for the building of the temple. 
his son, King Solomon, takes that gold and makes with it some of the most important central elements of the temple of God. In 1 Kings chapter 7, starting with verse 48, we see the construction of the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, golden lampstands for placement in the holy section, all sorts of golden plates and settings and utensils. These are objects that all have special, important significance in reflecting who the holy God is, how precious God is, how totally set apart, how the things we bring to serve him need to be of utmost purity and value. Again, the use of earthly gold for the worship of Yahweh does not make sense if the inherent value of earthly gold was just some kind of mass hallucination, some arbitrary mind game we all agree to. Why was earthly gold a fitting vessel for worshiping God? Because gold is actually valuable in and of itself. I grant it makes no sense from a purely human perspective. If we go back further in Israelite history, we see Moses did the same thing, building the prototype of the temple, the tabernacle as it's called. This was basically a transportable temple that was in a tent before the nation of Israel got settled in the promised land. In Exodus chapter 35, verse 5, Moses takes a huge contribution of, care to take a guess, yes, gold to construct the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 6, we see the high priest Ephod, the outfit the high priest was supposed to wear in performing his sacred duties, was also made of gold. Gold reflects the heavenly realities. Gold has value because it was specifically made to show something of value of God himself. Now, it's particularly fascinating how gold is still regarded so highly, especially because the world has moved on for decades now to what is known as fiat money. Fiat means by decree. We have the ultimate creation fiat, where God stated man, animals, plants, the green earth, and even asset classes like gold, by God's fiat, by God's decree, shall be valuable. And in a derived sense, earthly nations also issue fiat. God invented nations and governments, and he has given governments some measure of authority that is a derivative of his authority. And we live in an era now where the everyday money we use, our medium of exchange, is performed purely according to the government's command. It's called paper U.S. dollars that you have in your wallet right now if you're an American, or euros if you're European. Now, it works very powerfully, actually. And again, it's because governments are given God's power. So when the U.S. government states by its authority that their green pieces of paper shall have value attached to it that you shall use to exchange and buy real stuff, a couch, food, a car, it actually works. Not perfectly, like nothing else in life. And every fiat currency eventually fails as every empire nation eventually falls and is replaced by something else. But we live in a functioning fiat money world. No one exchanges gold and silver for stuff anymore. Not since 1971, when President Nixon closed the dollar gold convertibility window. You know, I imagine being a Christian alive in 1972 that I may have wondered if gold would just disappear from relevance in 10, 20, 30 years time. You would think that that may have been a reasonable prediction to make, right? Well, if we're not going to use gold as a medium ex of exchange anymore, not even in the abstract sense where we can theoretically exchange these paper currencies for gold, then what's the point of gold, right? Where, where's the utility? Who would want to hold this stuff? 
It turns out, a lot of people. Gold hasn't gone anywhere. Its value, reflected abstractly in fiat terms, has only skyrocketed up since the 1970s. Now, it hasn't been a straight line up. It never will be. Just like I stated, Bitcoin's not going to be a straight line down to zero. There are liquidity crises along the way where you need to sell anything and everything, including gold, so you can put food literally on the table with dollars. There are panics, but gold remains. It just doesn't die. That's my point. Decades and decades since the last gold coin exchanged hands for a real, tangible good or service. Why? Why is the gold narrative so sticky in human consciousness? There's this great scene in the kids' movie Jumanji where one of the villains, a British big game hunter from the early 1900s named Van Pelt, is magically transported into modern-day uh, 1990s-ish America. And this hunter goes into the local gun store to try to buy a weapon, obviously doesn't have any of the fiat currency of the land, no U.S. dollars, and the store owner tries to get him to fill out some, I guess, like background paperwork or whatever you need to buy a gun. And then to just get out of the store as fast as possible with his gun, what does this ancient big game hunter from a foreign land do? He just plops down a bunch of gold coins. The store owner quickly goes, thank you very much. I'll fill out these papers for you. And the transaction's done. Now, why does this scene work? You get where I'm going with this. You get the illustration. If Van Pelt tried to throw down some Swiss francs, wouldn't have worked. What would the store owner say? Why are you throwing this worthless paper at me? You're not in Switzerland. What do I do with this? There's no Swiss government backing these notes here. Get out of my store. Doesn't even matter what nation or ancient emperor or king is imprinted on the gold coin. Anyone even to this day would be thrilled to find a gold coin on the ground. No, gold is nowhere near as hyper-liquid as dollars are today. Nowhere near as convenient. Super inconvenient to use. That's, that's in large part why it disappeared and becomes abstracted into paper currency time and time again through the centuries. But if hard-pressed, and if there was enough of it, you would take gold coins or even just straight bullion for your goods and services. People would break into your home to steal your gold, but people wouldn't bother taking your stash of Greek drachma banknotes from 2001. A drachma would be as good as toilet paper today because a government that used to back it, the sovereign nation of Greece before 2002 and the formation of the Eurozone, no longer exists. It's the Eurozone now. You see, gold's value transcends time and location, as this scene from Jumanji illustrates. But gold's unusually transcendent property can only really be explained if you posit the God who imbues value by his mere decree. Now, does that mean gold's value, which is merely imperfectly reflected by its pricing in whatever currency of the land you live by, dollars again, in my case as an American, will gold's dollar-denominated price just continue to go up over time as long as your central bank is printing money or you have inflation or whatever like we're experiencing now? No, not at all. There are all sorts of extra complicating factors that you need to think about as manager of your own personal wealth. That being said, we'll touch on some of those factors a little bit next episode. I want to offer one more biblical example as well of gold significance. I want to talk about some of the extra biblical reasons, the providential ways God designed gold to be so important and transcendent of time and place, as I put it just now. And also, very important, some of the Bible's warnings about not just gold in particular, 
but wealth and money generally. We'll save that for next episode when we talk again in maybe two years. Have a great rest of your 2023 and 2024. See you all soon if I don't die.